Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, the monthly podcast series brought to you by the team that produced the Global Cosmetics Newsfeed. 2023's theme is Circular Cosmetics. This month's topic is hair care and I'm your host, Siobhan Murphy. The road to a circular cosmetics industry is fraught with challenges on both the manufacturing and the consumption sides of the equation. One only has to look at the hair care category to understand that 80% of waste is produced by the consumption, not production. As gatekeepers to the industry, how can production, R&D, marketing and retail teams work in tangent to mitigate the hair care category's environmental footprint? To help me answer these questions and more, it is my pleasure to introduce this month's panel. A warm welcome to Audrey Wesson, Corporate Sustainability Manager at Inelex. Warm welcome back to Mallory Huron, Beauty and Wellness Strategist at Fashion Snoops. Hello to Dr. Terence Chung, Founder of Fru. And welcome back to Anna Brightman, Co-Founder of UpCircle Beauty. Welcome, everybody. Morning. Hi. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having us. Mallory, let's start with you. What are the consumer challenges fashion snoops have been tracking and where are the opportunities for the circular hair care category? Well, the biggest consumer challenge that we're currently tracking now is really, you know, this changing of habits. I think consumers want to be sustainable. We know from statistics and studies, they want to be more sustainable. But with hair care, there's a real barrier to changing those lifelong habits. So particularly, we see this in the form of waterless hair care, which, of course, from a beauty trend standpoint, we've seen waterless um, hair care bars just completely evolve from a kind of product that consumers weren't sure about. They may might not have been as good quality. So now we're seeing truly amazing waterless hair care options. So we love the brand Super Zero, for example. They're really on par with salon level hair care, but consumers still have this barrier to wanting to adopt them in place of, of these big liquid bottles. You know, there's something about having this giant bottle of shampoo or conditioner that feels like a value as opposed to these small bars, which of course we know are, equate to these larger um, liquid products. And actually constitute more of a value, but consumers still haven't, you know, fully um, absorbed that message. Other consumer challenges to changing habits are, of course, refill stations. We've seen brands try and incorporate refillable products, not only um, in retail situations, but also refill services like Loop and pairing with them for you know easy mail delivery of uh, refill products. And also other switches like powder form dry shampoo is another one that we're seeing from a trend perspective. Brands like Michelle um, Dry Shampoo is incorporated in the brush and trying to phase out these aerosol formulas um, that stick to the scalp, you know, that actually absorb more than ordinary sprays. And so that is probably the biggest challenge facing um, uh, consumers in terms of upcycled hair care is just changing their habits. I think the second one would, of course, be the issue of greenwashing and misinformation. This has been rife within hair care, of course. We saw a few years ago, The Ordinary actually, when they debuted their hair care line, they had this whole pro-sulfate campaign 
that was all about, you know, educating consumers about how sulfates aren't necessarily bad for your hair and that pendulum had swung too far in, in one direction. And so I think there's still a lot of confusion on the consumer side. What is good? What isn't? What is sustainable? What isn't? Especially when some of the studies do change um, from time to time. It does leave the consumer questioning what is the best thing to do. So I think um, in you know regards to those challenges, the opportunity here is certainly more education. You know, really getting out there, educating consumers, um, you know, in fun ways that are going to speak to them. You know about how you know things like these uh, bar form hair care. You know they are actually going to save you money. They're better for travel. Um, you know, teaching them about how much you know using three or four or five cans of dry shampoo over the course of the year, how that aerosol effect lends to the atmosphere. Like, what is the impact? How can you be a better consumer and steward of the environment and still keep your hair looking great at the same time? I think consumers want to do good. Um, they just need that push and that education to change their habits and adopt cleaner routines. And at Inelex, Audrey, what are the consumer challenges you're discovering with regards to formulation? I think it's really similar to what Mallory said about the adoption of new techniques. Um, and the opportunity that we see and explore at Intellex is really how ingredients can take over that aspect of circularity and kind of do a lot of the sustainability work for you when consumers might be hesitant to change their routines or change to a new format. So really looking at what ingredients you formulate with and whether they have an impact at the end of life on, let's say, the water systems as they're rinsed down the drain, which is, of course, so important or relevant to hair care, um, making sure you're formulating with ingredients that are biodegradable, that are non-toxic to aquatic life. So as um, our products are rinsed down the drain, whether they're treated by a municipal wastewater system or, you know, by a, a well or septic system in your homes, um, either way that that end of life part of the the formulation is not doing more harm on the environment. So I think there's certainly this format, product format, product formulation type um, way to address circularity that we definitely have to get over that hurdle of consumer adoption um, and make the product either fun or beneficial to the consumer. Um, I, I totally agree with what Mallory said about, you know, consumers say they want to go more sustainable. And then when it there isn't something in it for them, it feels like a sacrifice to use a different type of product. So, yeah, I really think there's an opportunity for the ingredients to be kind of the powerhouse of the sustainability of a formulation and um, at least make sure that 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 um, is covered before you move on to kind of trying to address that format or in-use aspect of the product. Talking about making products fun, Terence, what are the challenges for your brand through? I think it's quite hard sometimes to really communicate like sustainability and sort of conscientiousness in terms of our consumer behavior and also match it with fun because it, it kind of triggers like different neural pathway in terms of when consumers are making that decision so so in terms of what we're trying to do is um yeah try to use really colorful packaging to really engage with customer from a sort of visual perspective when they see our product on the shelf um and then the second part is um hopefully incorporate some of that um 
sort of education behind um, what we're trying to do from circularity and sustainability um, sort of aspect. And, and that piece don't actually always get through because most customers, I would say probably um, 70 to 80% of customers are still in their mass market stage where they're much more cost conscious and much have much less understanding about what is really sustainable. Most customer, even the most educated one right now are only still stuck at a stage where they think sustainable means natural rather than um, sort of circular ingredients. Um, and they, they're still stuck at a stage where all oh, um, synthetic are probably worth for our environment, but they don't fully appreciate um, what are the hurdles and, and why there are certain sort of rays of difference in terms of why this ingredient is slightly more sustainable, but not fully sustainable. Um, and, and even stretching that understanding to how these ingredients can contribute to waterway pollution, et cetera. Like, um, like, um, like others are saying about how um, the real challenge is not just where we're sourcing these feedstock from and how we're making them, but also um, how they're going to be degraded, which um, a lot of ingredients, especially the new um, circular ingredients that's coming up to the market, there's still very limited study in terms of how they would actually be degrading in soil, in water, um, waterway, etc. So those are a lot that need to be sort of catching up in the next couple of years. But I think the most most the hardest thing when it comes to circular hair care is um, replacement of silicone, which probably no one um, really want to completely face, but silicone is like a like magic ingredients that um, we just have not found a true replacement. Um, so anytime a consumer is picking up our products, using it, um, and it's supposed to be sustainable um, partially because there's no silicone, and then therefore they realize actually a product um, performance doesn't match with whatever they, they were used to be using. And, and then they switch back, which is, yeah, that, that's the number one challenge in terms of um, circular hair care in general is how do we solve the, um, the, the silicone performance problem and, and how do we introduce other ingredients like cationic and um, sort of chemically derived ingredients that is cost um, competitive comparing to whatever that we are already using. So that's um, a lot of the sort of conscious um, sort of selection process for the customer is not going to be down to cost because so much of these circular ingredients are so much pricier than whatever is on in a bottle on a shelf right now. Um, but but yeah, that's that's kind of our understanding at the moment. And at UpCircle Beauty, Anna, what are the challenges you've been tracking, and how are you solving them? Well, as as you're probably aware, for UpCircle, circularity has been our complete focus since the very beginning in every single product that we make uh, from both the ingredient sourcing perspective but also the packaging as well with our packaging return scheme. Uh, launching into the hair care category has definitely been an ambition of ours um, but it's taken us what close to seven years uh, to, to reach this really exciting point that we're at now where we are finally uh, launching with an absolutely fantastic product into hair care, which is, of course, circular. Um, but it's because there have been lots of challenges that it has taken us this long to do that. Um, so uh, I think at the start, Mallory was talking about the issue of water in hair care and that being a, a major challenge. And to be honest, that was one that we really wanted to make sure we did 
uh, tackle in whatever product we did release. And so for years, we were formulating or attempting to formulate, should I say, uh, shampoo and conditioner bars. Now, there are lots on the market, uh, but the vast majority of them are formulated with palm oil, which is something our brand is completely free from. And the other thing that we find when we talk to customers is that shampoo bars are not really suitable on all hair types. It's pretty challenging, or we've certainly failed, to create a shampoo bar that is going to be just as good on short, straight hair as it is on curly hair, as it is on Afro hair. So as Terence was discussing, uh, what's often the challenge is that people try a natural, sustainable hair care product, but the performance doesn't match up, and therefore they are almost forced to go back to the less sustainable or ethical versions of hair care products that actually perform better. So we've taken time to really make sure that whatever product we put out there is uh, just as good in terms of the performance as uh, you know the, the, the less ethical products that are on the market. But that it, it has to be innovative. I think that's something that we've always taken great pride in as a brand, is making sure that the products that we're producing are truly different to what's already available on the market. So the product that we will be releasing in March of this year uh, is a shampoo creme, which is a hybrid of liquid and solid. So it's a very unique and innovative concentrated formula that delivers three times the washes of a traditional liquid shampoo. Its mousse-like consistency uses 50% less water than your average liquid shampoo, meaning that rather than sort of a large dollop that you might usually use as your uh, kind of serving size as such, you only use a blueberry-sized amount for average to long hair. There's, of course, also less waste than a shampoo bar due to the fact that almost always with shampoo bars, those last slithers always end up being discarded or just slipping out of your hands and going down the drain. So this is the sort of product that we're hoping that once you use it, you really won't ever go back to a liquid shampoo. The fact that, of course, it's in a concentrated formula also means that it's 50% less in terms of its weight uh, and therefore less carbon emissions, which is, of course, always a top priority for us as well. Packaging is completely plastic free and, of course, refillable with our industry leading packaging return scheme. So um, it's something that we're really proud of. Um, of course, circular packaging, circular ingredient. So it's got upcycled pink berry extract in it, uh, which is a fantastic ingredient, which is uh, clinically proven to reduce scalp irritation as well. Uh, so I think. As with all products that you bring to the market these days, you know, the, the industry is highly competitive. Uh, consumers are only getting more educated on what it is that they want to use and will use from both an ethical and a performance perspective. And with the cost of living crisis, uh, it's also important that costs are kept as low as possible without sacrificing any of those values either. So for brands, it's really, really hard <laughs> to check every single box at the same time. But that's why I think uh, these things do take time and you have to be willing to start again and continually refine uh, despite the pressure that you might be receiving from customers to, to launch a product. We tried for years and years and years with different formats uh, to produce a hair care product, but ultimately we just weren't satisfied that it was inclusive uh, and, and suitable for everyone, which an upcircle product all, always has to be. So um, yeah, lots of challenges along the way, uh, but ultimately I think in order to bring something to market, you, you have to be confident that the product that you produce uh, checks all of those boxes at the same time. So yeah, it's a, it's a very exciting time for our brand as we launch into the hair care category for the first time. 
And talking, bringing something to market, Mallory, what are the digital challenges that fashion snoops have been tracking? and Where are the opportunities for the circular hair care category? Well, I think certainly one of the biggest opportunities just from a pure ingredient standpoint is really leveraging blockchain technology to be a huge influence on where your ingredients are coming from, how ethical they are, how they're being sourced, how they're traveling up the supply chain, um, and really identifying um, ingredients and sourcing issues that can be solved to maximize sustainability. You know, and also um, you know, in relation to that is also optimizing efficiency of shipping using technology and tracking. It's just so interesting because, I mean, even a few short years ago, consumers were neither really a, much aware of nor did they care about uh, where ingredients were specifically being sourced or what, what are the shipping, um, what, what is the shipping like? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's grown slowly. Uh, consumers, you know, of course, for several years have been keeping track, but I think um, recently we've hit max educated consumer and also technology has aided in the educated consumer of helping them see exactly how, you know, behind the scenes and how their ingredients are sourced. So I think really, Tech is exposing, in many ways, uh, a lot of the process behind the creation of consumer products, and they really are looking for products that deliver sustainability efforts and initiatives in every step of the way. I think another huge challenge from a tech perspective is a simple need to design styling tools that use less energy and also solve waste problems on both a consumer and a salon level. We've seen some you know, encouraging progress in this area. Two years ago at CES, there was a great product introduced by L'Oreal, um, the L'Oreal Water Saver. It's a sustainable hair care system for salons that helps to reduce water waste, uh, which is a huge issue for salons. So I think really focusing more on these specific issues and where within the hair care industry, both consumer facing and salon level, we can reduce waste is, is a huge um, area of improvement um, from that tech can help solve. I also just think um, from the from the tech perspective, um, you know, just speaking to the effect of social media in, in the consumerist standpoint, I think we've really hit peak consumerism that's being fueled a lot by TikTok right now. I've, in fact, there's been so much that there is now uh, a backlash called, that they're calling the de-influencer movement. And, you know, Anna just spoke um, about the pressure to launch. And this is something that, Social media really fuels for beauty brands. Uh, you know, fans come into comment sections all the time. When are you launching this? When are you launching that? And I think, um, you know, taking a stand and, you know, as, as she mentioned, you know, standing by your ethics as a brand and really taking the time to develop a product right and for the right reasons is really important and using all the technology um, at one's disposal to really create a product that, you know, is the brand can be confident about standing by as well as um, sending out to consumers for sure is an opportunity uh, within the tech space. And in Alex, Audrey, what are the digital challenges and where are the opportunities for formulating the circular hair care category? I think there's always a challenge with communicating sustainability, whether it's in formulation or ingredients. Um, and this is really because of the digital landscape, in my opinion. Um, the way people are consuming information is really quick 
and short and oversimplified oftentimes. And sustainability is not quick and is not very simple. Um, so to, to really communicate the sustainability benefits of one ingredient over another, one formula over another requires a longer attention span than I think we often have from consumers or even in B2B marketing um, on how we are just used to consuming information really quickly. So I think there's that that is really one of the biggest challenges, which you know is more on the communication side than digital, but I really think it's because of our you know digital landscape. Um, especially when we talk about circularity, which I would consider even a subset of broader sustainability. I think we're really prone to um, misusing this term or overusing it or not educating um, our own industry and then consumers on it properly before it gets used um, and overused and again, oversimplified. So I really think with this topic, um, you know, as an industry and with the leaders in circularity that are, you know, here on this call, it's so great to have this discussion and really to be able to kind of hone in on what are the elements of circularity that we should be embracing and take that into the digital media landscape to make sure that we're agreed upon a definition um, and not kind of trying to oversimplify uh, the aspect of sustainability that's really quite hard to incorporate into ingredients and formulation. So how does your brand through deal with these challenges in the digital space, Terence? Yeah, I mean, in terms of um, what we're trying to do a lot more is I'm trying to educate customers in terms of specific um, reason why we incorporate certain ingredients, which obviously most brands are doing as well. Um, and and I think I do agree with how um, difficult it is to really communicate um, cosmetics and the science behind it, as well as the sustainability sort of credential behind every single ingredient and even different manufacturing um, sort of processes, how we develop them and product format and packaging and all of that together make, makes it an incredibly hard piece um, in terms of education because um, if you just think about most um, Gen Z and teenagers, they're just so involved with um, the likes of TikTok and Instagram Reels where most of their attention only um, the longest is somewhere between three to five seconds. So to really be able to communicate um, scientifically accurate uh, messages that is useful to the end user is incredibly difficult. Um, and especially when, when it comes to hair care as well, um, there's quite a lot of conflicting messages about certain ingredients, for example, sulfate, which we already mentioned. Um, silicone is still a debatable one in terms of a sustainability um, credential and how it's perceived um, in, in a customer space, um, but, but but these type of messages, um, it's also very hair specific as well. So if you say one product works for this type of hair, it's also very going to work very differently in, in our type of hair. And I think the um, hair coloring, coloring industry is probably the biggest um, sort of elephant in the room in terms of how no one's really talking about a sustainability profile and how much um, damage it's potentially causing um, when it's released into a waterway. And it's pretty fundamental to also the um, hair salon industry as well. And that's why no one's sort of prepared to really challenge that. But um, much of the chemical reagent that they're using are synthetic and they can be very harsh in terms of um, 
what it's doing to the hair as well as to your scalp as well. A lot of people um, losing hair as a result of um, them using these type of reagents. Um, but overall, yeah, there's just not much progress at all in terms of how we're willing to potentially shift um, the hair dyeing and hair treatment industry um, into um, not even talking about circular, but just, just thinking more about how can they use more sort of sustainable and renewable chemicals that's not going to cause um, environmental damage. But, um, and, and, do, and, and message is, um, yeah, most of the content that's out there that's trending, um, they're viral because of algorithmic um, um, sort of advantage that certain um, content has because they're eye-catching, they are fun, but not necessarily because they're true. And therefore, um, this type of content can perpetuate a lot of misunderstanding um, about the industry and about specific products and packaging. Um, and, and it's actually potentially going to cause more damage than um, um, what benefits they're bringing. And for your brand UpCircle, Anna, with the launch of a new product, what are the challenges and where are the opportunities in the digital space? Well, as I mentioned, it's a really exciting time for us because this represents us going into a brand new category. We are first and foremost a skincare brand. Uh, we make skincare products and then skincare accessories that you might use alongside your skincare routine, like an under eye roller or a gua sha stone, that sort of thing. Uh, but this is our first hair care product. So we are uh, looking at our strategy a little bit differently and we're a couple of months away from launch now. So at the minute we're very much in a kind of information gathering phase where we are fueling out the product in its kind of sample form to people who know better than us to be completely honest. So salons, senior hairstylists, people like that um, to get testimonials that we can then turn into digital ads. So uh, digital marketing is by far our biggest cost, but also our biggest opportunity for marketing our brand generally. So we, uh, you know, primarily that would be through social media advertising. And what is social media advertising? Well, at the moment, it's largely TikTok style reels uh, and in video form, as multiple people on the panel have already discussed. Like Terence said, the uh, attention span is, is under 10 seconds. So how on earth do you deliver all of the messages that you want to about a product which is truly differentiated and doesn't exist on the market as is? Uh, how do you educate to convince people in basically no time that they should trust that your product, despite being ethical, vegan, certified cruelty-free, B Corp, etc., all of these fantastic credentials, is also as good, if not better, in terms of performance. Because I think ultimately that's that's the challenge, is that there's a lack of trust about the performance of circular um, and ethical products generally. So we are going down the classic TikTok style in our strategy of, of identifying what the hook is and using kind of shock tactics, really. Um, what's your problem? What's your solution? So is the problem that the uh, lather that's produced by natural products isn't good enough? Uh, does it make the hair feel lank? Uh, is it lightweight enough? Does it promote hair growth? Is it stripping? Uh, does the hair hold when it's been styled? Uh, does it contain palm oil, etc.? If you start your video with 
that problem that people usually face, then very quickly you flip that narrative and you know you you start with an issue and then you show your product as, as the solution for that and you try and do that in <laughs> five to ten seconds, which is yeah certainly a big challenge. But we've been designing our first TV campaign this year as well, and we've decided to actually take the biggest uh, skepticism about circularity and skincare and almost lead with that to show the ridiculousness of the skepticism. So um, we were one of the first brands to really fully put the circular economy at the front of our branding from the brand name to uh, the hierarchy of messaging, but everything about UpCircle is about the circular economy. Uh, so in, in this TV campaign that we are developing, we, we literally have scenes of people uh, diving into bins, uh, dumpster diving as such, uh, to, to salvage and ingredients and then you end the ad by explaining how much value there is in those ingredients now of course the reality behind the scenes of our production is not that we are diving in bins uh, but what it highlights is that you know um, it, it's kind of a similar concept uh, but it's of course much more sanitary uh, and professional than that um, but if you lead with the ridiculous and then you turn the ridiculous or, or kind of unattractive into something beautiful at the end uh, then you've you've grabbed the attention and it doesn't really matter if what you're showing isn't what happens uh we are we're taking the skeptics approach uh we're almost exaggerating it um and then all we really need to do is get the attention whether that then comes back with uh more skepticism it, it doesn't really matter that's that's marketing uh and and in this day and age where most marketing is digital and the attention spans are so short the most important thing that you need to do is get people's attention and then the education comes later because fundamentally you can't educate on all of these fantastic things that all of us are doing um either on the packaging which is incredibly limited you know i'm, I'm talking about how our product is 50 percent smaller than the average because it's concentrated and has less water that also means less retail space as such to communicate the message of what the product does on pack um that, that's kind of physical marketing uh digital marketing is even less um generous so yeah, lots of challenges there. But for us, we we start with the problem and then we display the solution. And we're kind of going with, uh, I guess, sort of attention grabbing shock tactics to spark interest in, in what we're doing, whether that's for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. At least it encourages consumers to investigate your brand further. They think, God, surely there's not a skincare brand that are diving into bins to get ingredients and then they expect me to put that on my face. Well, no, that's that's definitely not how our processes work. But if that's made you at least research how it does work, then we've we've succeeded. And talking about starting with the problem and finding a solution, Mallory, what are the environmental challenges that fashion snoops have been tracking and where are the opportunities for the circular hair care category? Well, certainly uh, one area where we see a huge opportunity for circular hair care is definitely the biotech field. Uh, biotechnology, if you're unfamiliar, is a portmanteau, of course, biology and technology, and it references ingredients that are either nature-inspired or nature-derived, but like lab and tech take it to the next level uh, to be a more sustainable product. Uh, so the challenge, of course, is taking this great opportunity of biotech and finding both effective and scalable biotech alternatives for unsustainable ingredients. Of course, palm oil has been mentioned uh, a few times uh, during the course of this conversation. That's one that biotech 
is really trying to find uh, an effective and scalable alternative for, as well as squalene, of course, is another one. We've seen many plant-based biotech alternatives to that ingredient. And, you know, we're seeing uh, chemistry and, and labs really take the best of nature and find uh, more efficient solutions that truly benefit all, benefit the consumer, benefit the environment, and also benefit local communities where some of these ingredients are over-harvested and lead to uh, terrible side effects, both from a, an environmental standpoint and a human standpoint. Uh, so definitely some new uh, biotech ingredients that we're seeing pop up. We've seen recently from the Upcycled Beauty Company, uh, a byproduct of hummus production. They've created a, an ingredient called Faba Tonic, um, which is for curly hair, which is interesting speaking to that whole idea of food waste. We know that there's a wealth in waste, truly, and that food waste has become a huge consumer concern. It's also simply a huge uh, humanitarian issue. The, the idea that there is such, you know, global um, hunger and such global food shortages, and yet their food waste is a major issue across the world. Um, and really, the beauty industry can step in and really try and take advantage of the wealth in all this waste. Just looking at this, you know, fava tonic, it's from the uh, byproduct of hummus, uh, you know, a snack that many that's beloved around the world. And so how can we use these byproducts, these these shells, these seeds, this leftover juice, whatever it is, and how can we turn that into something that is usable? And of course, these foods are so nutrient dense and with the possibilities of biotechnology, there's so much that can be done with them, You know, whether it's creating a synthetic alternative or fermenting them and using the fermentation process to create an entirely new um, active. There's just so much opportunity there. We also saw Javad in Active Beauty. They launched Patchouli Up, which is upcycled um, from Patchouli. So, you know, really trying to take something that was left over um, after fragrance creation, taking the distilled patchouli leaves um, that are used in fragrance and using them to create um, a tonic for the scalp that can eliminate dry flakes and such. So really... Uh, speaking to Anna's point about, uh, you know, diving in the dumpsters, finding what we can uh, from the food industry and using that, I think, is a great opportunity. Another huge challenge, um, however, is also not only what to do with the masses of plastic bottles that we see uh, for um, consumer use, but also styling tools. You know, again, styling tools are mainly uh, plastic and unre completely unrecyclable parts. And so we're seeing brands step up to try and help consumers be more, uh, you know, sustainable in this aspect. And Styler has a recycling program they recycle 100% of the tool for the consumer, uh, whether it's old, unused, or non-working hairstyling tools. They take tools from other brands. Um, they also give consumers a discount code to use for purchase. Um, so it's a great initiative and incentive for consumers who are looking to be more sustainable. If they have a drawer full of old, uh, unused, or un, un, you know, non-working hairstyling tools to be able to send those back and know that they're being recycled in some fashion. Of course, we also know that salon sustainability is a huge concern. And thankfully, there are organizations like Green Circle Salons who are trying to address this. We know that there's a huge amount of waste, um, speaking to the point um, mentioned earlier, from hair salons. Um, some statistics from Green Circle Salons, 42,000 pounds of excess hair color, lightener, and to toner is thrown away every day. 110,000 pounds of used metal, like hair foils, are thrown away. 
uh, PPE waste, hair clippings. There's just a huge amount of waste, but Green Circle Salon's mission is to try and work with salons to identify these areas of waste and reduce it, ultimately bringing more value and profit to the salon itself, to the stylist. And so it truly is um, a beneficial for the entire ecosystem, uh, so to speak, of of hairstyling. So I think there's a ton of opportunity in this space with biotech and also identifying those issues of upcycling um, and um, sustainability within the salon space. And at Inelex, Audrey, what are the environmental challenges and where are the opportunities for ingredients and formulation for circular hair care category? Yeah, I think there's um, going to be a lot of challenges in making formulations, you know, more environmentally sustainable. Um, one of the big areas we are seeing that is not really being widely talked about is the environmental hazards around certain quaternary ammonium compounds, which are widely used in especially conditioners. So quats such as BTAC and CTAC really aren't biodegrading at a, at a quick enough rate um, and also pose some aquatic toxicity concerns. So, you know, moving a, a really core ingredient platform over to something such as a non-quat is something that's going to, you know, face um, or that formulators will have to face as they want to make their formulas more um, environmentally conscious and sustainable. You know, and Dr. Terrence mentioned how how hard it is to switch from silicone, just maximizing you know the same performance without increasing your costs, maybe without wanting to change out any other ingredients. Oftentimes we kind of have to redesign the whole formula to move out an unsustainable ingredient category that's so core to the function. Um, so I think that's going to be a big challenge. And again, I'm not really seeing as much noise about quats as as maybe should we should be hearing um, and, and what the alternatives out there to, to switch to are. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Um, in terms of opportunities, I think there's a lot of opportunities in um, alternative feedstocks. We've talked about palm and some of the issues with palm. Um, but there are a lot of plants out there that have much more sustainable supply chains and are just utilized in a more circular way. So for example, the coconut plant, has long been utilized for every single part of the plant, the meat, the the shell, the husk, if the tree is cut down, which it doesn't need to be cut down to harvest the coconut, um, the, the wood has use. So really utilizing, you know, all aspects of a plant certainly contributes to a more circular agricultural system. Um, we also utilize as a feedstock, a lot of brassica at Intellex. Um, the brassica or the rapeseed plant really contributes to more circular processes and, and regenerative agriculture. It's often used as a cover crop. So in the off season of the cash crop, brassica is grown to regenerate the soil um, and, you know, doesn't kind of use any additional land, you're just planting on the off season of, of another crop. So I think there are, um, you know, existing agricultural streams or, you know, supply chains that can be utilized to improve the sustainability of our bio-based products and, and cosmetic ingredients. Um, I think that's a really key opportunity 
with, again, existing supply chains. I think there's so much innovation that's going on, um, you know, as we've talked about, about biotech um, and recreating kind of innovative agricultural feedstocks. Um, but there's also a lot of opportunity out there in established supply chains. So really tapping into all different ways to source more sustainably, I think is really crucial and, and presents a huge opportunity for improving ingredient sustainability profiles and, and therefore formulation sustainability profiles. And at Fru, Terence, what are the environmental challenges for your brand? Yeah, so I think um, there's been obviously quite a lot of talk about some palm oil, et cetera. And I think um, it's going to be a debate that's going to go on probably for another decade, to be honest, in terms of um, whether palm oil can be like classified as actually sustainable ingredients now that you've got um, a lot of different initiatives to make sure that palm oil doesn't sort of cause further exploitation and further um, environmental damage. And, and I think, um, I, and I hope actually the industry would kind of switch to a point where they start to understand what is truly sustainable when it comes to um, plant oil production, because um, there, there's been a lot of debates, especially in the past five years. Um, if, if you just look into the scientific community and, and people that truly are concerned about environmental footprint of plant oil, we we just see that the, the biggest problem with this is that we consume way too much plant oil in general, and therefore we need to produce all these excess um, palm oil and, and all sorts of different oils that utilize a lot of land that originally were rainforests. And, and, and there's been numerous studies that also suggest that actually palm oil is not necessarily culprit because it is the most um, sort of um, oil, oil rich plants that produce the most oil per hectare that uses the least um, fertilizers, uses the least um, insecticides, for example. And, and if you compare that to, for example, coconuts and quite a few other plants, it might actually be the most sustainable plants to produce oil, um, although it's causing other issues. And, and I think there's been a lot of focus on that because um, there's story piece about how it's causing orangutan um, sort of um, sort of decimation and stuff, but there's not so much, however, um, story that talks about how soya is actually causing even more of an issue in Amazon, for example. So I think there has to be a much more honest and sort of transparent conversation about which oil is the most um, sustainable, which isn't. And and if we were to switch to things like rapeseed, for example, sunflower, for example, um, that could potentially compete with um, food production, which we see um, so much of problem that's coming from Ukraine in the last year when um, sunflower oil um, is being disrupted in terms of the export and, and how that can cause um, sort of other issue in terms of um, sort of food price growing in developing countries. So so we really want to make sure that we're really doing the right thing instead of just using um, palm oil as kind of like a marketing thing to say, okay, we're, we're dishing up palm oil because we try to be sustainable because it, I think really the solution is much more complicated than that and that could change as well in terms of how the um, how the feedstock supply um, and, and, and how it's going to be changing throughout um, the years with like political um, issues and, and other issues such as um, how rainforest is going to be managed going forward. Um, but but uh, other things such as um, 
um, um, quotes that some Audrey was talking about is it's going to be another massive issue as well because if you if we're trying to reduce um, and remove silicon completely and people are not switching as a result of that and and you want to get get rid of quads i think yeah i think we have to have really good luck to to get a consumer to completely switch by dishing these main two ingredients because essentially that's the main two ingredients that supports the hair care industry for the last i would say 30 40 years and if you get rid of that basically you're probably going to more or less stone age hair care where customers are going to find their hair really knotty and and in if you can persuade the customer to accept that, then maybe we can achieve true circularity um, in hair care. But if we can't, then we're really always going to struggle. So, so I think at that point, that means government intervention is going to be required. But it's, it's almost like the same as the use of fossil fuel, for example, can you suddenly legislate and go, um, we're going to stop using fossil fuel altogether. And, let's say 10, 20 years, I think um, the net zero um, topic is, is still going to be a huge challenge, even though we all think we're going to achieve it. But at the moment, I think most um, experts would still think, actually, it's probably good, going to be quite a challenge if you just consider all the social economical um, challenge that we're already facing already without looking at um, challenge, um, trying to address um, climate change and sustainability and fit it all together in a, in a really perfect puzzle. Um, but, but yeah, that's just kind of our viewpoint on that. And talking government intervention, Mallory, what are the regulatory challenges that fashion snoops have been tracking and where are the opportunities for the circular hair care category? So certainly uh, this is an area where we're starting to see a little bit more regulations, specifically in countries like the United States that are essentially the wild, wild west for beauty regulations. Um, and definitely as consumers become more aware of the very long lasting and sometimes generational effects of the toxicity of certain ingredients, they're going to be advocating for their legislators to protect them. Of course, there are more global changes as well. Uh, this year, the um, Supply Chain Due Diligence Act that uh, went into effect this year that was passed by the German parliament, also known as the Supply Chain Act, uh, went into the effect. And it really focuses on human rights issues. And its, its aim is to make supply, change, supply chains more transparent and try and benefit both human rights and environmental protection. So again, speaking to the idea of blockchain technology of consumers wanting to trace their products from the bottle to the very plant uh, it was grown from is going to make that more transparent and easier. Uh, but getting back to the idea, uh, that issue of safety, um, and specifically within the US, recent studies have shown that specifically women using chemical hair straightening products have a higher risk of uterine cancer. Um, of course, this disproportionately affects um, black women and BIPOC communities. Uh, so that we're really questioning the safety of some of these products and trying to develop uh, standards that make it safer and find alternatives that make it safer. A huge, uh, a huge advancement in the US came at the end of last year with the Modernization of Cosmetics Regulation Act 
Uh, if you're unaware, in the United States, all cosmetics are essentially regulated under the Food and Drug Administration, uh, which has very little, which previously had very little oversight of the beauty industry, and that is beginning to change um, after several years of documentaries and influencers and exposés calling out how warped the system is. Um, so essentially, there's some significant changes coming up in terms of regulation and enforcement and taking these issues like these chemical hair straighteners um, and toxic baby powder and whether talc uh, formulas still contain asbestos, et cetera. I'm really trying to, you know, tackle these issues to instill consumer confidence. And this will be more so important um, regulations for environmental, uh, environmentally friendly products, because of course, consumers have a high level uh, need for trust for their products. And, you know, if, if it comes out that, you know, some sustainable product that's grown in popularity poses some risk or that's a huge threat to the consumer adoption of sustainable products. So I think regulation is going to be key here and instilling consumer confidence in these upcycled uh, circular products and creating uh, an atmosphere of trust. And so certainly, in addition, and governments could do much more, both individually and as a global collective, to come together and try and make uh, regulations for waste, specifically uh, with the issue of upcycling, much stronger. Um, you know, it's basically the onus is on individual brands themselves in many countries to just do good from the good of their own heart or from the good of how it appears from a marketing standpoint, uh, whichever it is. Um, and so it would be nice to have more stronger enforcement across the board in terms of uh, fines for excessive waste, for excessive, um, you know, off byproducts, for not recycling properly. We're seeing them and they do exist in some countries, but not all. Certainly the U.S. is one of the worst. Um, and so I think regulations will actually be key and will be the biggest opportunity to strengthen the entire sustainability uh, and sustainable beauty industry going forward. And in Alex, Audrey, what are the regulatory challenges and where are the opportunities for the hair care category in terms of formulation and ingredients? I think there's actually an opportunity in regulations in how, especially like the EU Green Deal proposal outlines a roadmap for developing more sustainable uh, chemistries and utilizing more sustainable chemistries. Um, I think looking at the product environmental footprint that it outlines is really a good opportunity for evaluating sustainability at a, you know, a scientific level um, and, and being able to kind of publish those results and speak to the environmental impact of a chemistry or a formulation. So I think there's some ways in which, you know, regulation, even if it's not enforced yet, but just proposed regulations can really help guide the industry towards a, a more sustainable direction. So I see that certainly as an opportunity. I think there's a challenge in more of the um, safety and compliance side with some of these ideas for circularity. Um, 
there's, you know, a local refill refill shop in my neighborhood um, where you can, you know, refill your your lotions and and shampoos and conditioners. Um, and I think there's a preservation challenge that needs to be addressed with those types of models. Um, how clean is the jar you're putting the product into? Um, what type of water did you rinse it out with? Is there any contamination that's possible? And do you have an effective preservation system to kind of implement something like refill? Um, similar with the opportunity or the idea of concentrates that get diluted into water, um, which we're seeing more in the home care space these days than necessarily personal care or hair care. But, um, you know, the concept of, of diluting a concentrate in water, again, what kind of water is is being used for the dilution um, and, and is there any potential contamination risk? So on the compliance side, I think there's, there's some challenges with embracing these really innovative ideas that would would bring a more sustainable product to market in just making sure that you know it has that safety standard of our our already packaged products um lastly i think there's there's a, both a challenge and an opportunity in as an industry as we self-regulate a lot of the times um, in coming up with a, a definition of upcycled. Um, we've talked a bit about upcycled ingredients here today or circular ingredients. And I think there's so many ways that that can be defined and that it's really going to be kind of a nebulous space until there is an agreed upon definition. Um, we saw this with the natural trend probably about a decade ago go using the term natural or all natural or 100% natural or na nature identical. There's all these different terms that had a lot of crossover of what they mean. And I think it's really, you know, valuable to those that are developing and utilizing truly upcycled ingredients to be able to communicate that. But I think there's also um, a tendency to kind of overuse that term or misuse it or use it in a way that's maybe not exactly accurate or well-defined. Um, and I think that's the responsibility of, you know, this sort of self-regulating industry, especially in the U.S., to kind of determine a definition and then make sure you kind of use that according to a standard. Um, and I think that's in the works. There's, you know, a food organization that has been uh, a task force that has been um, developing a definition for upcycled ingredients in food. So I think we need to look towards that and make sure we're adopting an agreed upon definition and not getting ourselves in an area where we're confusing consumers or kind of um, diluting our own message about uh, circular ingredients or or circular components or chemistries in our formulas. And at UpCircle Beauty, Anna, what were the regulatory challenges for your new hair care product? Uh, to be honest, people will probably get bored of me talking about this because I've been talking about it for seven years. But the biggest challenge that we always face is the fact that uh, we've talked about consumers becoming increasingly educated and, and taking more and more due diligence when it comes to who they'll purchase from. And one of the ways that that's made easier for consumers is looking for certifications. But for a brand like us that is so uh, wholeheartedly committed to using upcycled ingredients, we are penalised from uh, most certifications because of the complexity of our supply chains and the sort of traceability of those ingredients across the world. So we now work with over 20 different upcycled ingredients uh, that, that are sourced all over the place. Um, but 
depending on what percentage of those ingredients is within our overall formulations, we are almost always um, not able to get a certification because we can't also rely on those businesses uh, where we have basically intercepted those ingredients and saved them at the point where those businesses would have discarded them. We would have to get all of them to be certified as well. And as most people know, particularly from the brand perspective, certifications are incredibly expensive and they are not only an individual product by product fee, but also an annual fee. So um, it, it, it seems a shame for those forward thinking, innovative brands like my own to be basically yeah, penalised for, for, for being front runners in this space. And I think that that's something that will hopefully change. Uh, again, I do talk about it a lot, but we're, we're supported by lots of certifications, even though we don't have their stamps on our products. They acknowledge that it's an issue in uh, their criteria for eligibility, and they say that they're committed to changing it, but we are yet to see change in that. Um, so that's difficult. But it also just means that we look for other very well-respected certifications like B Corp. And don't get me wrong, that was a very challenging process as well because they are so rigorous, which is why they are so well-respected. Uh, but just at the end of last year, we were able to finally get B Corp certification. And um, to put it into numbers, over 100,000 businesses have signed up for the B Corp impact assessment since its launch, which was only in 2006. It's not as kind of long-standing as I think lots of people think it is, uh, but only 3,500 companies are actually B Corp certified, which shows really how difficult it is to become B Corp certified, which is why it's so respected. Um, you know, the, the median score for a business is 50.9 and, and we came out at a 96.3. So this is the sort of thing that for us, proves to our customers and you know builds that trust and builds that transparency um which helps negate the issue that we face which is quite a unique issue <laughs> where unfortunately you know yes we are organic but we can't put the organic stamp on our products um and it goes back to what we were talking about which is the the beauty of upcycling really which is utilizing every single part of a plant every single one of our products has a unique provenance and a, and a, and a wonderful story to tell um but that story often is a complicated one because it's involved an entire different industry, which has nothing to do with skincare often. Um, but we've we've seen a waste ingredient. We've seen a waste ingredient that has fantastic skincare benefits. We've intercepted it. We've reprocessed it so that it's suitable for use in skincare. And then it's gone through the traditional, uh, you know, legal stability uh, efficacy testing that all products that are bought to market have to go through. Um, but yeah, in terms of regulations and things like that, that's that's a challenge for us um, that that we're yet to overcome. But uh, I'm optimistic that progress is on the way. <laughs> and talking progress, Mallory, what does it look like in 12 months time? Well, certainly uh, in 12 months time, I, I would hope for a few things. Firstly, I would hope that consumers begin to adopt and move more towards normalizing and incorporating a different uh, hair care routines. You know, as we discussed at the top of this conversation, the idea of not only waterless hair care, but even, uh, as Anna mentioned, a, a concentrate. What, what does that change look like? The refilling issue, perhaps being more mindful about sending back um, the styling tools that I mentioned to a recycling program and being more proactive about that. Again, consumers do want to be sustainable, but you know, specifically within hair care, it's just a, it's a tricky area to really incorporate that sustainability. Uh, unlike other areas, like that we've seen in the skincare, for example, um, sustainability has been very easy for consumers to adopt. 
Uh, so I hope consumers will will learn more, will really take to social media and learn about some of the great brands that are doing uh, amazing work within sustainable hair care and begin to incorporate some of those changes. And next, I hope to see a little bit more progress in terms of the regulation we were just discussing, specifically surrounding toxic hair chem chemicals and also putting tighter regulations, um, uh, speaking to the idea of certifications and, you know, who, you know, who can call themselves um, organic or clean or green and really taking away the idea of greenwashing, which has become rampant and has led to a ton of consumer confusion. Again, case in point, the idea um, that Upcircle Beauty is completely organic, but because, as Anna mentioned, they of their process, they can't say that. So it's just it's case in point of how uh, these certifications and the consumer perception of who is a quote-unquote green brand is just so warped by some of the greenwashing and some of the greenest and most intentional sustainable brands can't technically call themselves organic. So I think some regulations and some um, taking away the greenwashing uh, would be great to see in order to bolster um, the really great uh, sustainable and eco-friendly hair care products uh, that already exist and are coming out to the market. And lastly, I'm really hopeful that we'll see more biotech alternatives and more upcycled ingredients incorporated into products, along with the essential component of marketing and consumer communication initiatives that actually educate the consumer about why these swaps are important. As educated as consumers are now, there is sometimes there's, um, you know, disproportionate focus, especially within hair care on just the packaging and not so much the formulation. Within skincare, we've seen consumers really more um, aware of both the issue of sustainable packaging and sustainable ingredients within. Within hair care, it essentially, we've really just seen a bunch of panic around sulfates and some ingredients, but there isn't by and large a huge, um, huge focus on the formulations, which of course is the, is the product in and of itself. So I think educating consumers about, okay, so here's this ingredient that you're probably using in your hair care right now. Here's why it's bad. If you want a good alternative, here's a great sustainable brand uh, to swap to. I think it would be a really um, important and, you know, progressive uh, thing for consumers to begin to identify these little areas within their hair care routines so they can make seamless and effortless swaps that will really start an, an avalanche and a chain of other swaps in other areas of their lives and hopefully on their way to a more sustainable reality. And what does progress like for your ingredients company, Audrey? We hope to see a lot more adoption of those non-quat cationic conditioning agents um, and, and really paired with silicone alternatives to create conditioners that biodegrade and overall have a, a better environmental footprint than the incumbent, you know, quaternium and silicone-based conditioners. So I think that is a huge space where as we get more adoption of those ingredients and can really optimize those formulas to mimic the performance of, of the existing conditioners, um, we can certainly make the category better. I think there's definitely an opportunity to really understand where our environmental impact of a formula is coming. As Mallory mentioned, you know, the ingredients and the formulation are so key to the impact of the product. Um, there was a life cycle analysis done a couple of years ago on shampoos and conditioners in the U.S. market. And while the majority of the impact was determined to be from the in-use heating of the water in the shower, 9% um, of the impact of the green 
greenhouse gas impact or carbon footprint of those products was from ingredients and only 4% was from packaging. So while both ingredients and packaging need to be addressed and need to be, you know, uh, more sustainable alternatives need to be chosen, certainly the focus on ingredients we see is really important and a, and a good opportunity to improve the overall sustainability of your formula. So I think that quantification of the sustainability impact is really crucial too to understanding within the industry and at the consumer level what sustainable swaps really make the difference. Um, and again, you know, we see a huge opportunity for that within, within quats and within silicones. And that through Terence, what does progress look like? Um, yeah, I mean, we're obviously trying to do our thing in terms of um, just making use of as much of these um, innovative um, ingredients that come from the likes of Inelex in our company and, and create uh, amazing products that will engage with the mass market. But I think um, just so much of it, although um, it's also sort of consumer behavior, but so much of it can also be done from an environmental level as well in terms of just having um, sort of specific intensive and potentially tax rates that would give um, sort of ingredients company and other company that comes up with um, innovative upcycle ingredients um, and and just grants to really push through um, the sort of in investigation process behind getting these ingredients and products up to, in, into markets, which is um, definitely not easy um, with all the end, sort of regulatory challenges that any products has to go through already. And and yeah, I mean, the government has done um, all sorts of um, supports and grants to um, the electric um, automobile industry and to green energy and actually historically to the petrochemical industry. So I don't see why they shouldn't um, sort of invest more, start to invest more um, money into just thinking about how we can um, move into a circular economy and and also from a point of view of i would say much of um if you if you just go around and look at all of the chemists out there that's doing all these good work in green chemistry actually much of them have gone through um education system where um majority of their education is completely based on um, fossil fuel chemistry. I mean, I've come from a science background. I've gone to chemistry, many chemistry classes. And there were, um, at the time when I went to university um, back in um, probably 15 years ago, and there, there's been a side module that talks about green chemistry. It's completely optional. Um, no one really cares about chemistry. And, and obviously now it's so much more important in terms of how we can transition away from the fossil fuel industry. But Still, when you talk to chemistry students nowadays, most of their studies is based on um, whatever they've been um, taught um, in the last 30 years, which is very much still um, fossil fuel based. So if there's a um, sort of intense incentive from the education departments and the um, government to really push more academics and industry um, level um, movement to look at how we can boost green chemistry and how we can adopt more and more um, chemistry that's completely based on renewable material, um, even better upcycling up, up material, that would be even better. Um, and and I, I think that another piece on that is also really establishing a thorough understanding about how discharging untreated um, chemicals can cause the waterway and um, sort of land and soil. We still have very limited understanding and little regards as well in terms of how um, 
types of untreated sewage can cause the environment. And, and as you can see, um, in last summer, how much untreated sewage has been discharged. And uh, I, yeah, that, that should be a criminal sentence for some of these water companies to be able to do that. But again, the government doesn't sort of instill strict enough um, regulation to stop these things from happening, to, to really understand how these discharges, how some of these chemicals, when they enter into a waterway, what's it going to do? Um, so, so government has a lot to catch up on in terms of um, just bringing um, everyone up to speed um, and, and get, getting all the so, um, experts from a chemistry side, from the environmental science side, to a level that we should do in order to um, make sure the industry is truly sustainable and, and circular. And at UpCircle Beauty, Anna, what does progress look like in the next 12 months? Oh, you'll have to ask me in about six months' time when our shampoo's been released and I can tell you that it's been a brilliant success and that we have successfully educated everyone on concentrated formulas and reducing water and therefore carbon footprints and that everyone has embraced this new format and we've solved the issue of drying shampoo bars and <laughs> everyone is now using the UpCircle shampoo creme and I'll say that is, that is progress as far as I'm concerned. But for now... Um, I'm, 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 I'm kind of proud of some of the steps that have been taken with this specific product to go the extra mile with regards to some of the research of the upcycled ingredient itself. So, for example, I mentioned at the very start of this podcast that um, the ingredient, the upcycled pink berry that we use in our shampoo creme uh, is, is clinically proven to decrease redness, itching and the appearance of flakes and scales. But we actually decided to test uh, the ingredient on volunteers who frequently wear a hijab or helmet because most current soothing scalp care products address scalp irritations that are triggered by biological or chemical causes but the contribution of physical causes has recently come to light um, particularly in the case of covered heads that create a confined atmosphere for the scalp uh, in addition, of course, to the friction. So this is the sort of attention to detail that we go into uh, in developing our products and, and, again, choosing to bring a product to market. And I hope that, um, you know, my own brand, as well as other brands, continue to really uh, inter interrogate new information uh, and new ingredients to make sure that they are the absolute best that they can be. Similarly, we're incredibly proud of our packaging return scheme, which we launched about three years ago, which has grown to be one of the best in the industry and really well regarded. It's growing at the moment 20% month on month. And I think that the reason for that is because we make it really attractive for our customers. Uh, we offer our refilled products at 20% cheaper than the standard prices of buying for lack of a better word, a virgin product, a brand new product. Um, and the stats on the actual impact of choosing to send your empty packaging back to us to sterilise and refill for you are, are really impressive as well. So overall, it's 65% less energy, 70% less CO2 and 45% less water per product to return and have it refilled by us. So I think it's, it's unsurprising really that the scheme that we've launched is... Um, growing so much and, and becoming uh, really a, a key part of what we do as a brand. Uh, but I do get a little frustrated looking at other brands out there that are often kind of alongside us in, in press articles and things like that, advertising themselves as having a, a refill scheme, but then perhaps it's only actually eligible on one product out of 20 or, you know, it's, it's hidden somewhere in the FAQs on their website. So they're, they're marketing themselves as being refillable beauty, but because 
behind the scenes it's such a complex operation to actually bring something like that into play um they'll they'll keep it in the small print let's say um by comparison we shout about it constantly <laughs> on all channels you know all over our website on our socials um because i think that it's something that really 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 can have a fantastic impact so i do hope that uh, we continue to see not just circular ingredients and innovation with regards to ingredient sourcing but also innovation with regards to making refill schemes attractive to the customer from both an ease and understanding perspective uh, but also a financial perspective as well because ultimately with so much going on in in the world we know that uh, keeping costs down and keeping price point as attractive as possible is something that is uh, has to be a, a priority for lots of consumers and with that i would like to thank my guests mallory audrey terence and anna for joining me today and to you for listening 